Today, we continue through the Gospel of Mark, and we've been doing this for many weeks now. And since chapter 3, we've been on this journey with Jesus' 12, his apostles, his core team. And we've been watching them grapple with the reality of who is Jesus. This is the question at the heartbeat of Mark's Gospel. Who is Jesus? And so if you're a guest with us today, if you've never followed Jesus in your life, this is the perfect text or gospel as a whole, for you to journey through. Because Mark wants to answer that question with clarity. He tells us in the first verse, Jesus is the Son of God. And the rest of the gospel is a journey of finding out what that means and how we apply that to our lives. And we've been watching since chapter 3, the apostles wrestle with this reality. They're not sure yet. And so Jesus, he calls them, and then they, they follow him, and they're trying to figure it out. And we learn along the way that becoming a follower of Jesus, it involves repenting, realigning our minds to what he says, believing that he is who he claimed to be, and following. We see this over and over in the gospel, but it leaves a question, doesn't it? How would you know if that's taken place in someone's life? What would it look like when the gospel comes into someone's life in such a way that it changes them? What is the evidence that someone has repented and believed and is following Jesus? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And so here's the big idea that I want you to keep in your mind. We are called to be sent. We are called to be sent. So when someone has repented and believed and follows Jesus, you will see a calling upon their lives and a sentness upon their lives. So open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. And he called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. I don't know if you recall learning to ride a bike. I do. I had a, a banana seat bike. It looked a lot like that. Uh, that's not me, but I looked kind of cool like that. Uh, and my dad, we had this front yard, and he took me out on my bike, and we wove through this, the trees of our front yard, and, you know, we took the training wheels off. It's pretty scary. And so he's holding the back of the banana seat, doing this kind of, you know, dad run. And let's go, and I fall. and try again. Let's go, and I fall. And eventually, I figure out. I get steady. This passage today, what we need to see going on here is the training wheels are coming off. The training wheels are coming off. In chapter 3, Jesus called these 12 men onto the top of a mountain. He said, I'm calling you to be apostles. And there's two pieces to this. You're going to be with me, and I'm going to send you. And from chapter 3 until this point, they've been with Jesus. They've seen Jesus be rejected and slandered and accused. They've listened to Jesus teach about how the kingdom comes. They've watched Jesus do miraculous things like cast out demons, heal broken bodies, and even raise the dead. And in the midst of all of it, the end of chapter 4, they start asking the right question. They watch Jesus miraculously calm a storm, and they say, who is this? Who is this? And then most recently, they watched Jesus even be rejected in his hometown. You see, the the apostles, they're still grappling with the question, who is this Jesus? They don't fully know. They've witnessed him in action, but they still haven't formulated an answer for themselves. And what do we see in verse 6 here? Jesus says, okay, you're ready. Time to go. 
Really? Like these guys have been tripping over their feet, even opposing Jesus at times, not understanding what he's trying to do. And now Jesus is saying, you guys are ready. Why don't you go out? I'm going to send you. I can't think of a like, more unprepared group of people that he might send. And to top it off, he says, I'm going to send you out with nothing. Don't even take an extra tunic. Peter, I mean, he was in a fashion, like, no tunic? Come on. But I, I like to imagine, you know, Peter and John going into a city and introducing themselves. Hi. Hi. Who are you? Oh, I'm Peter. This is John. Cool. What are you here for? Oh, Jesus sent us. Who's Jesus? Not really sure. Okay. Well, where are you guys from? Oh, Galilee. Oh, you're a long way from home. Why don't you have anything? Jesus told us not to bring anything. What? Well, why are you here? He told us to come. What are you going to do? Well, he told us we have authority. Authority to do what? Well, let me show you. It's an odd thing to do. These guys don't seem prepared. They don't seem ready. They don't have all the answers. They're still tripping over their feet, and on top of it, they're sent with no resources. Why, Jesus? Because the Lord wants us to see that he never sends a prepared people. If you wait until you feel ready enough, you will never go. You will never embrace the sentness of being with Jesus. Yes, the apostles will eventually come to answer the question, who is Jesus? And that will transform the way that they're sent. And yet Christ can still use them. He can still send them even when they don't have the full answer. Why? Because the power lies not in the messengers, but in the message. The power lies not in the messengers, but in the message. It is the power of the gospel that brings about salvation, not the power of the messenger. And where do they derive the power? Jesus says, go, I give you my authority. You're not going on your own authority. Jesus, he doesn't send the apostles out with their resumes or their own skill set. He sends them out with his authority, which means all of life, all of mission, whether you live for Jesus in your workplace or as a professional minister or if you're a missionary somewhere, all of it, all of life is about dependency upon the one who has sent us. Jesus says, go. It's time to go. It's interesting to me. It's just so interesting because I look back on how we planted this church and we prepared a lot. A lot of preparedness. We do a lot of planning, a lot of learning. I could answer what the Protestant way is. Ooh, you know, like, didn't land. It's okay. Uh, And planning is good. Planning is godly. The Spirit gives the gift of administration. Doesn't sound cool, but it's legit. I need that. If you have the spirit of administration, please come talk to me. Far more useful than the spirit of tongues. But, uh, and tongues is good, (laughs) okay? I'm totally undoing Corinthians. This is what happens when I don't use a manuscript. But, planning isn't enough. You see, in the Western world, we're very prone to trusting in our strength, trusting in our resources, trusting in our ability. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Like those things, I can leverage those things for my kingdom, but I'm the one who sends. I'm the one who calls. I'm the one who endows authority. I'm the one who is in control of your mission. The fundamental work then of being sent out by Jesus is obedience. 
a surrender to what he desires for your life, and a going and a trusting that even though you're on the banana seat, he's not going to let go. He's going to guide you, and even if he helps you become steady, he's taking the wheels off it. He'll still empower you. And so the apostles, they go. And it says, look at uh, verse... uh, 10, they go, and whenever you enter a house, there until you uh, stay there, until you depart. And if any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. It seems interesting, too, that Jesus sends out a unprepared people into a field where they know rejection is going to take place. He warns them, you're going to have to shake it off. Just shake, shake, shake it off because the players are going to hate, 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 you know? Uh, So shake that dirt off your shoulder. The Jay-Z reference was better, okay? Uh, They're going into rejection. This is something that we have to understand as a called and sent people, that Living in all of life for Jesus means we will face rejection. It's not something that might happen. It's something that is a part of following Jesus in this world. And that's why we get this bizarre kind of story inserted all of a sudden where you're like, wait a second, right turn. John gets beheaded. Why are we talking about this? So let's talk about it. Why would Mark place this story here of all places? The apostles are going out. They're doing the things Jesus said he could do. They're healing people. They're casting out demons. They're anointing the sick. But meanwhile, John loses his head. But if you look at it, it's really important to see this. Verse 14, the apostles go out and King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Jesus' name had become known. Jesus sends us out into all of life that his name might become known, not just in some spheres of life, but even in the powers of life. God wants his name to be known in every sector of human existence. And people are asking the question, who is Jesus? Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. And others said he's a prophet, like one of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, who I beheaded, has been raised. When people begin grappling with this question, who is Jesus? When you hear about his fame and you start to try to formulate an answer, because everyone does. What this shows is that our answers are usually subjective rather than objective. They're subjective. They're based on our opinions or our experiences or our perspectives or what we think he ought to be. They're not objective. They're not founded in the historical documents that make very plain who Jesus is. And Herod, he says, this is John the Baptist back from the dead. I cut his head off. And we get the backstory. John uh, walks in the true prophetic tradition of Israel's prophets. Here we have a crooked king reigning over God's people 
And John goes to him and says, it doesn't matter what crown is on your head. You're living an immoral life. You've married your brother's wife. This is wrong. It needs to stop. And so what happens? John puts them in, in jail. But Herodias, John's wife, will not be satisfied by this. So when the opportunity avails itself, she says, one is head. So she manipulates her daughter and gets John's head. And we see two very important things come out of Herod's mouth. Look at uh, verse 20. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. You see, John liked, or sorry, Herod liked John. He liked the message. He heard it. It perplexed him. Even though it challenged him, he said, oh, you're not going to change my life, but I'm interested. There was a receptivity. He, he put him away, but he didn't have him killed, but then his wife goes for it. And the king makes this rash oath. And we read in verse 26, the king was exceedingly sorry but because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. Think about it. King Herod gladly hears the message of the kingdom. But what is his true God? His reputation. His guests. How people see him. So when it comes down to either defending John and protecting him or looking foolish by breaking his word, he chooses to kill John. And so we have to ask again, why is this story inserted here? Why did the disciples go out and we learn about this? we got to remember that John was the forerunner to Jesus' ministry all the way through the gospel. We start with that. John's preparing the way. He's preparing the way. And so in, on one hand, Mark is giving us a heads up of, where the way of Jesus is leading. John's death is just a foreshadowing of Christ's death to come. But more so, it's an illumination of the sort of rejection that we're being sent out into. You see, when people reject the gospel, they're not rejecting the messengers, they're rejecting the message. It's pushing us to see, though, that rejection starts in here, too. See, I worry we don't always grapple with the full picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We're called to be with Jesus, and we're called to be sent on his behalf. But I think we truncate the gospel. We say, no, I just want to be with Jesus. I don't want to have to open up my mouth and tell people about Jesus. What are some of the reasons for that? Fear is one of them. We fear what people might think. We fear being uh, associated with the sort of Christianity that tries to push its faith on other people. We so highly lift up the Canadian identity of don't push your faith on people that we would rather honor that than honor Christ. We're happy to be with him, but don't send us out with words. We're afraid that we might be ridiculed, we might be laughed at, or that we might lose reputation. Or, you, you don't want to be sent out by Jesus because of a fear of inadequacy. You don't feel ready. You don't feel like you've been a Christian long enough. You don't feel like you know enough about him. And, and I get that on, on many levels. 
But often the best evangelists in our midst are the people who just came to faith in Jesus. Every time I see it, they can't help but start talking about Jesus. They have to tell people about Jesus, what's happened in their lives. So where does that go? It's my cell phone, just in case you're wondering. No, my best friend calling from Ontario. Uh, inadequacy. Inadequacy. How much does that stop you from going out with the message of Jesus? I don't know enough. I wouldn't know what to say. I wouldn't know how to respond if they ask a hard question. But do you see what's going on there? You think that being sent depends solely upon your resources. Being sent and going out, Christ is with you. He will equip you. And that's why we have the church. We're here to equip one another and encourage one another. And, and look, the bare minimum of this passage is, yes, we're, we're called to go out and, and share with our words about the message of Jesus, who he is in all areas of life. It's at the very least that, but it's also more. You see, we're called to be sent into all of life. So if you're a lawyer, you lawyer for Jesus. I don't know what lawyers do. Dan does, and uh, he's trying to figure it out. What does it mean to be following Christ there? If you're a doctor, what does it mean to be a doctor who is sent by Jesus to be a doctor? What does it mean to be a teacher? What does it mean to be a student? You see, we're sent into all of life to bring the gospel to bear in all all of life, and in all of life, there will be times where we have to straight up tell people, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to save me, he forgives my sins, that he loves the world, and he loves you and would love for you to come to know him. There are times we have to say that, but I think we also are called to bear witness with the transformation he desires to take place in us. So if your workplace has a culture of gossip, you don't gossip. If your workplace has a culture of laziness, you work hard. Because Christ calls us to be a witness to his presence in our lives wherever we're sent out. The thing is, we just want to be with him. That's when we truncate the gospel. You look, keep that for the professionals, keep that for the evangelists, keep that for the people that are good with their words. I'm just going to be with Jesus. I'll come to church. I'll go to my community group. I'll have my personal devotions, but I don't want that to bear on any other area of my life. It's a truncated gospel. Let me ask you, have you ever shared your faith with someone who does not believe in Jesus? Ever. If, if you have, when was the last time? Have you ever started a day with, Lord, give me an opportunity to talk to anyone about you? Or are your prayers more about, Lord, I want to be with you. I want to be with you. I want to be with you. That is a good desire, but you know that your being with Jesus has been truncated if it doesn't turn into mission because when you've been with Jesus, he sends you. You might be saying, well, that was just for the apostles. That's not for everyone. This is clearly a passage about the apostles because we even know through the scriptures, eventually he sends them out again and they can take stuff, right? So this isn't a mandate that you can't take anything forever. But throughout the New Testament over and over again, we see that every Christian is called to this ministry of bringing the gospel to the whole world. 
Yes, some will be particularly gifted at evangelism, but all of us are evangelists in some sense. All of us are called to carry the gospel into the world in some sense. We might do it in greater or lesser degrees, but we all bear that same calling because God wants to be made known in the world through his son. And if you've been with Jesus, he will give you that desire. And if you don't have that desire, it doesn't mean that you haven't ever been with Jesus, but it does mean that perhaps you haven't heard the full gospel or that you're truncating it because of fear or a sense of inadequacy. We're called to be sent. But on the other hand, sometimes we just want the sent part without the being. I think this is particularly true for those in vocational ministry like myself or those in seminary or those in parachurch ministry or even those who are just really zealous and passionate about seeing people reached with the gospel. We get so caught up in the things we're doing that we don't even know how to be with Jesus unless we're doing something for him. You can't be still. And it's not just your ADHD flaring up. You just can't stay still. Because you don't find the joy of just being with him anymore. So you're, you're riding on a past experience you had, or you're riding on the commands that this is the sort of life Jesus wants to live. But hear me, we're not doing these things out of obligation of obeying commands. Then we're just falling back under the law. We are sent because of who we get to be with. It's joy that drives us out into the world. It's a willingness to be with this one who wants to send us into all of life. And so if you're embracing the scent part, but you're not to the point that you're not even taking care of being with Jesus, it will compromise your experience of Christ's love and joy in your life, and you will burn out. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. You see, in all of this, in all of this, Christ wants us to see that being with him is our supreme joy and treasure. When we've been with him, he sends us out and it's his authority. It's not our talent. It's not our ability. It's not our preparedness. It is him sending us. He is the sender. And it might involve rejection. I'm not going to lie to you about that. I've been rejected by friends. I've shared the gospel and it's, it's hurt friendships. That might happen. I've had family uh, stop inviting me to certain events because they are prejudicial against some of my beliefs. And so they just stop inviting me when they do family stuff. And I hope most of you know me well enough that I don't try to be cruel about the gospel or in people's face or needlessly calling out uh, sin. I try to go out into the world with tact and with understanding and with grace, and I will still experience rejection. So no matter how much you try to tame the gospel, at the end of the day, there will be rejection because the gospel is offensive. And we want to avoid that, and you can't. But if you avoid sharing it all together, you're withholding life from people. And you're truncating who Jesus is. The remedy is being with him. The remedy is being with him. I was at our board meeting on Thursday, and we're praying for our church. And this is how you know you've elected godly people to serve in this capacity. They desire more to pray for our community than plan. We plan a lot. We're praying a lot now, too. 
and our hearts break for our community because we want to see our community flourish and we see it flourish and we want to see it flourish all the more. And then we have joy over the good things that are happening and lots of good is happening. And so we're in our little office. You know, five of us are praying and we're praying and we're praying and it becomes like it, we lose track of time. We've been praying for like an hour. And I don't usually share things like this, but I had a, a prophetic image for our community. And I don't usually get things like this. And it was very strong and like I could feel it. And uh, if you could put the picture of Christ the Redeemer in uh, Brazil, you've seen this before, right? Do you know the backstory? A group of Catholic priests and missionaries uh, were lamenting over the brokenness of the city, the godliness that they, uh, godlessness that they perceived at the time. And they wanted to erect a statue that showed Christ's authority and peace and desire to redeem. And so some, sometime around 1934, it was completed. And as we were praying, I'm standing like this, because I'm like kind of charismatic at times. And I suddenly realize I'm the statue. I'm not saying I'm Jesus. I'm just looking through his eyes over the city, but the city's Vancouver. And I sense all of the authority that he has over this city, all of the love, all of the desire to see it redeemed and renewed in every area. But then I felt his head severed from the body. And it hit me. If the body of Christ is not in submission to the head, we can do nothing. Are we severing ourselves from Christ in some capacity? It's just a question I want to ask. I don't, I don't want to say I have the answer. Because I, I meet many of you and I see a sincere passion for Jesus and it's beautiful and I meet many of us and we're all struggling with like, what does this sentness mean in the city? What does it mean to be sent out by Jesus? And it's hard, but don't stop there at the hardness. Ask Jesus into that space and say, Jesus, we need you to show up. We need you to be our head because without you, we can do nothing. We need you to give us courage or the desire even to go out into all of life with the gospel. It takes repentance. Have you truncated the gospel in some capacity? Have you at one point been sent but stopped because you're now discouraged? Or have you never even embraced the sentness of following Jesus? Or have you so embraced it that you haven't been with Jesus for so long that you almost forget the joy of grace? Because this passage, it does remind us that the one who came to send us is the one who came and was sent himself. But the way that he walked was the way of rejection. As John lost his head, Christ lost his life on the cross to redeem, to reveal love, to forgive sins, that we might repent and turn to him and believe in him and follow him, that he might send us out into the world with that power. So we need him to give us the authority. We can't muster up the sort of authority he has. I believe he wants to see our city redeemed, that he wants to use every single person in this room. But are we going to lay down our lives and say, you can use me, Jesus? Are we going to say yes before we even know where he's going to send us?